0: I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 76, we read, What is Conservatism? A collection of pieces edited by Frank Meyer and published in 1964. Joining us to discuss the book this week is Josh Lewis. Josh is the host of the Saving Elephants podcast, a show dedicated to introducing his fellow millennials to the historical and intellectual roots of conservatism in hopes of restoring the Republican Party. So Josh, welcome. That sounds like your, uh, your your podcast is kind of on the same mission ours is.
1: That's that's exactly what I was thinking. This is a... Uh, we, we started not too... Uh not too long ago and we were on not all that dissimilar mis- missions of trying to answer the question what is conservatism? And I'm not sure about you guys, but I still don't feel like I've got that figured out.
0: Nope. <laughs> not sure. either.
1: So this um this book is uh we, we read uh a
0: few episodes back, another collection by Mayer, and uh, this one is sort of uh gets to the point of our, our podcast and yours, you know, what is conservatism? And this was yours your suggestion. Um so maybe just to start us out, tell us uh why
1: you picked it and, uh, and what you liked about it. Yeah, the, the book, What is Conservatism? is one of my favorite books for answering the question because you kind of, you in the book, sort of scratching your head thinking, well, I, I think I got that, but I'm still a little, I don't want to say the word confused, just you don't feel like you could summarize it in one sentence, right? You, you don't feel yeah. like you could, you could say with absolute certainty, this is conservatism. And, and I think that was kind of Frank Meyer's point uh, Frank Meyer is an interesting character. The conservative historian George Nash said of Frank Meyer that he was someone with a uh, the, the ever center of heresy, I think is how he put it. He was someone that was just doggedly determined to point out if someone was a little bit too far in the libertarian or traditional conservative mold. And of course, he's mostly known for fusionism, this this infusing or this synthesis between the two at times what's seen as warring coalitions on the right, the traditional conservative, the social conservative versus the libertarian or the free market conservative. And Meyer was really arguing these two traditions are not at odds with each other. They're actually one and the same. And it's not even conservatism over the last 50 years. We're talking about a project that dates back really to the beginning of Western civilization. And he tried to demonstrate that in this book by pulling together these various Essayist or or you know conservatives who wrote these various essays, kind of arguing their various points and saying, well, there, there's really some grander project here that, as much as we disagree, there's actually more in common than there is a divergence. I think that's right, and
0: it, it in a way it seems fusionism seems so natural to us now because we are sort of living in the world of that movement conservatism that came out of National Review and and that that era of fifties and sixties figuring out what we were, what we were doing. Is there's two parts to it though, and I, I think it's I'm not sure which is the more important. But there's he makes the, the point frequently and I think convincingly that libertarianism and traditionalism or whatever you want to call the two factions, um, they both need each other. They're not um, they're not really opposites. They both believe in freedom and virtue they they place different emphases on it but they they kind of need each other and support each other but i think there was also at the time this this sense of a common enemy freedom was under siege from soviet communism after, you know as the cold war was beginning and not just you know the foreign threat but also you know at home the growth of democratic socialism and you know, people, people saw what it was doing in, in Eastern Europe and didn't want it here. And, it, and, and that threat of a common enemy, I think, drove these two potentially warring camps into each other's arms a bit because they both saw that they could recognize something of themselves in the other, but not in that third force that was, you know, gaining in power worldwide. It makes me wonder how much the fusionism is of its time. And how much it can continue since the end of the Cold War, where we've sort of lost that one factor, but still have these other points that 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 Meyer made that are, I, I think, still valid.
1: The uh, n- most recent guest out of my podcast, Stephanie Slay. The episode's not out yet, but she wrote the article, "The Future of Fusionism." I was grateful to get her on the on the show to talk about this. She kind of takes issue with this whole notion that fusionism can be thought of as the coalition in the Cold War that brought everyone together. And, and she she mentions, you know, as as you say, that's correct. That that is, in a sense, what brought us together politically. But she said, what Frank Meyer was talking about was actually a a philosophical orientation. That it it it's not a that it would not be correct to think of this as sort of well, the Cold War is over, so therefore there's nothing more we have in common, and it's obviously a little bit more challenging. We're we're beginning to see the fusionist, I don't want to call it coalition, but philosophical orientation beginning to phrase somewhat. But it's still no less true in spite of the fact we live in a post-Cold War world.
2: Yeah, that's, the, that's what really struck me when reading this again. And as Kyle said, we've, we've read uh, Frank Meyer before, but how, how relevant is, is fusionism today? I, I, I guess it still is because we still have the, the Paul Ryan uh, wing of the Republican Party, although definitely on the wane uh, versus the traditionalist side. I think some folks would view maybe the the Trump side as more traditionalist, but it's hard to peg because religious value is not really the Trump thing. And so it's almost like, as I was reading through this again, I was thinking to myself, how, how relevant is it for now? Does it, is it, is it still relevant or is the battle have the battle lines changed? And whether we call this a coalition or not, I mean, I think, I'm sorry, whether Meyer had in mind a coalition or not, I think that's basically what it, the, the practical, uh, you know, upshot of a fusionism is bringing together a coalition. And, you know, fast forward today to today is is that the Republican coalition anymore? A conservative coalition? I'm not sure I put that question to you guys. It's uh, it's a, to me, it's an open question. But.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's open for sure, just because everything's in flux right now. But I feel like every time I try to figure out where it's going, it comes back to this in a way um i just i it's always going to be two parties just because of the way electoral systems work you know not that it'll be that way every year but it always coalesces in one party and another and i i don't see any other way to combine i i don't see libertarian faction going over to the aocs
2: of the world i mean they, they maybe not but i mean I, you and i have talked about this before a little bit Kyle i think i think during the bush years it felt and in the nineties it felt like if you were a libertarian, you were for sure a Republican. I'm not sure that's true now. I think most libertarians that I know who are who would consider themselves strongly libertarian are pretty much voting Democrat now. And so I think that that has been a shift, at least anecdotally in, in my experience.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm I'm kind of with you guys. Um, the second question I don't have an answer to beyond what is conservatism is where are we going from here? And that, and that seems to be kind of an open question that changes daily. But I, I consider myself to be a fusionist. I still think it's very relevant. I still think it's the the appropriate way to look at conservatism. But that doesn't mean that it's guaranteed to carry on into the future. It's entirely possible that we're seeing the end of the fusionist era.
0: Yeah, it is. Maybe it's just a, a failure of imagination on my part, but I don't see what else you, you get. I mean, maybe it's that the, what we think of as a libertarian tradition is... is sort of not as significant a factor anymore and in terms of voters sure i mean we've all seen that that plot of uh where people stand on the different issues and the three of the quarters of the square were pretty full of people and then the one wasn't and that was that was libertarian you know in the, in the 2016 race we've, we've talked about on this podcast before so maybe i think it's possible that maybe that's not as big a f- Factor anymore. Although I think there's more beneath the surface there. I think there are people who, if liberty were actually imperiled in a significant way, and in some ways it is, would come back to those sort of base American values of of ordered liberty, emphasis on the liberty,
2: you know, where that's under threat. You know, what's interesting to me is you have guys like uh, Ross Douthit and Adrian Vermule and others, Marco Rubio. I mean, I think are heading in a direction of these are traditionalists. I, I would characterize them, kind of group them as traditionalists. And instead of looking to the sort of the past uh, fusionist model of, of coalition with libertarians, it's like they want to dump the libertarians. They want to dump the Paul Ryans and instead replace them with this uh, this working class coalition. You know, and, it, and I think the 2020 election kind of set... Set forth a potential vision, which is picking up particularly Hispanic working class. But you know, Trump brought in all these uh, working class whites that either didn't vote at all or you know voted for Obama, maybe voted for Reagan, that type of thing. We're not a group of folks that you could count on, but s- suddenly I think that I think the traditionalists of today are like, well, we don't need them, uh, those uh, libertarians, those Paul Ryans anymore you know, let's move in this other direction where we can build this working class slash traditionalist party. So I don't know if that's going to, that is what the future holds, but it is interesting to think. And and I think
1: we all stand at the precipice now
2: of like having no idea which direction it's going to (laughs) go.
1: Well, and and maybe I'm, maybe I'm reiterating myself somewhat, but I mean, I'm with you. I don't know which direction it's going to go. Part of the reason I even brought up the book, What is Conservatism? Part of the reason I'm even doing Saving Elephants is I'm not content to just sit on the sidelines waiting to see what direction this goes. I, I want to be doing what I can <laughs> as loudly and forcefully within reason as I can to say, this is the direction I think we should be going. And, and I really think these, you, you know, when, when you, I say this often on my podcast, when I start to read these sort of forefathers and, and, you know, the men and women that forged this intellectual tradition, I kind of feel cheated. I've been a lifelong Republican. I've called myself a conservative for as far back as I have any political memory. And yet it's really only been in the last several years that I even knew these voices were out there. When I start reading this depth and this richness of history that conservatism has, it's like, why are we not talking about this mm-hmm. more? Like this contains so many answers to things that we're struggling with today. And sure, some of it, maybe it's outdated and I'm perfectly happy to have arguments about maybe there's a different direction we can be going, but this, these voices need to be heard desperately.
0: I think that's so right. I mean, there's, there is so much there and, you know, especially as, as even in popular culture, the founding fathers are still I mean, Hamilton is this popular musical that still is, you know, thing people talk about. Why not? That could so easily be leveraged into, well, let's let's read about what these guys were talking about and what, what they were arguing about between themselves. I mean, it's if, if you want to jump ahead a little to the uh, the Hayek essay here, which is called Why I Am Not a Conservative, um, he has some harsh things to say about the conservative traditional wing of things. But he, he also makes, I think, an important point that matches some of what Meyer and, and the other people are saying. This, this uh, he says, the difference between liberalism and conservatism must not be obscured by the fact that in the United States it is still possible to defend individual liberty by defending long-established institutions, and that that's different from most of the world. So I feel like this fusionism has that at its heart, and that's somebody who wants to look to a, a, a storied past, need look no farther than our our founding fathers and our founding documents, where they these. What were at the time revolutionary things are our heritage and are our tradition. That in itself is something really grand that we should be pushing instead of just some of the low level crap that passes for political dialogue on both sides. And, you know, I mean, on our side as much as theirs, it's all, you know, Twitter gotchas and whatnot. And I don't mean that people need to read the entire Federalist Papers to become proper conservatives, although it's it's worth reading. But, you know, there is. Just getting giving people the gist of that, I think, unites these two factions of conservatism in a way that uh, nothing else can.
2: I think that's totally right, and it jumped out at me while reading at this time because one of the one of the critiques that I, that I always hear from the from the left is that uh, conservatives love the founding so much, but during the time of the founding, you absolutely would have been on the side of King George or whatever, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure. Uh, the conservatives as described by hayek that is the what must be a 1950s version of european conservatives uh, which is just really not recognizable to me but if we're talking about conservatism as a as a temperament and a style of not wanting change well maybe that is the the case but i think you're right Kyle that the legacy that we have of conservatism today and, and this is you know, part of our investigation. But it really is that what we want to preserve is not whatever is currently in vogue or, you know, currently in power. Whatever authority is in power, we want to preserve it. That's not our brand of conservative, certainly not mine. But this uh, constitutional government, classical liberal uh, conservatism, that's what we're trying to preserve. That's what we're trying to carry forward. And that's what we're, try- we're trying to slow the... You know, in my mind, the destruction of it by
1: the, you know, the, the the radical left moving in a in a collectivist direction. I find it funny that in a book entitled What is Conservatism, you know, with, with contributors that are all arguing for their viewpoint, they're right in the middle of it. You get this essay, Why I Am Not a Conservative. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was great. <laughs> but as a conservative, when I read Hayek's essay, I'm I'm mostly in agreement with it. You know, there's a few fine points I might pick apart here or there. Uh, but but two thoughts and, and Colin I'm I appreciate you saying this. So this is Jonah Goldberg's point. He talks about this essay all the time. And he constantly says, you know, a lot of people misunderstand this because right in multiple places in the essay, it kind of allows for the possibility that, you know what, in the United States, most of this critique may actually not be applicable because they don't have the same European conservative traditions that run counter to the liberal democracy here in the U.S. we're trying to conserve. That being said, I think this is a deeply appropriate essay because it it actually synthesizes very well with what a lot of these other essayists were saying. Uh, You know, they use different words to to say this, but they try to distinguish between conservatism as a mere temperament or disposition, which they acknowledge can have value to it. But they say there's a difference between that and a more intellectual or philosophical orientation. I forget which one of the essayists is that says this, but says something to the extent that a lot of people who who are conservative, have some idea in mind of what it is we're trying to conserve. And it's not just a simple matter of, you know, the famous phrase, William F. Buckley, the conservatives are the man who stands athwart history yelling, stop. And, and I think that's helpful, but I think it's an insufficient understanding of conservatism. And the reason I say I think Hayek's essay is a good fit for this book is because one of the dangers of conservatism, one of the temptations, is that it can just become a reactionary just say no, just a, let's apply the brakes. Let's just stop going where we're going. And it actually takes an awful lot of work and that sort of um, uh, moral imagination that Russell Kirk often talked about to try to cultivate, well, what is the actual world where we would hope to move toward and how can conser- conservatism get us there?
0: Yeah, I think that's quite right. And it's. It, I, th- I think it also shows uh, Myers' broad-mindedness in, cerc- in seeking out the answer to the question that he's that he put such an essay in there and it, but you're right. It, it's not completely out of bounds. It's not, I mean, it's not like putting a socialist essay in here. Here's just somebody who's on one pretty far to one side of the coalition, but he's definitely on our side. And I think you mentioned uh, Russell Kirk and uh, we, we read his essay in this book too, called prescription authority and ordered freedom. And he, he talks about this difference. And I think this is something that again, we could be clearer about, is that there's a difference between authority and authoritarianism. And that there's a difference between accepting tested authority, accepting tradition, and just blindly following whatever. But this is, and this is a point we come back to a lot in this podcast, it's hard to draw the line about where that division is. And that's part of being in a movement that is not utopian, that is not uh, strictly ideological in the way that, socialism is and the way that you know some maybe theocratic movements are is 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 that sort of balancing and that's again that is tradition i mean tradition is the i mean we, we talk about burke's views on tradition as the collected wisdom of generations and that's what kirk is talking about here he, quote, he quotes burke uh, several times in the essay and that is not an easy thing to understand and you know as he and burke both talked about you being traditionalist doesn't mean you never change. It just means you change slowly and thoughtfully. That's still not a great guide to action if you want a simple answer. And that's why there's a whole book about it and we're still talking about it. And, you know, but it's the right answer, I think, but it's not, it's not the satisfying, simple answer that if you were searching for some political thing that meets your, that feels right to you, this one takes a little more thought and it takes a lot of, a little more effort and discussion and, we're all going to get things wrong on the way to finding the right answers here, and that that that's humbling. Uh, but I think that's that's the central part of what of what the answer has to be.
2: And I think we have the more difficult task if you compare it with with the left because what you've just described and you've described it before very well, Kyle. I'm going to quote you as conservatism is like do this, but not too much. You know? <laughs> Fusionism is essentially like we need to have. We need to have freedom and liberty, but not too much because we also need tradition. And tradition is sort of like we need to, we need to carry on the wisdom of the ages, but not so much that we can't move forward. Versus, here's, here's Kirk talking about uh, the left. He says, from its beginning, the liberal movement yearned for the destruction of all authority. The early liberals were convinced that once they should overthrow established governments and churches, supplanting them by rational and egalitarian and purely sec- secular institutions, the principal problems of the human condition would be near solution. Poverty, ignorance, disease, and war might then be terminated once enlightened self-interest, popular suffrage, and utilitarian public policies of triumph. Now, we, we obviously know that this, this has been completely discredited, but if you're on the side of more, 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 push, 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 and you never saw a program that you didn't want to fund, you know, uh, spending into oblivion, Versus yes, let's spend, but not too much. you know, <laughs> Yes, let's spend, but let's pay for it, you know, mm-hmm. Or maybe we shouldn't spend in that way at uh, you know, being the kind of the party or whatever sort of saying, like, well, you know, maybe maybe we can't quite go that far, maybe we shouldn't, you know like let's let's be prudent versus just fast and pushing and uh, tearing down uh, any and all institutions, any and all norms, any and all conventions. That stand in the way. In some ways, uh, I know that the the left and the AOCs of the world are constantly live in a, in a in a constant state of of frustration and you know neurosis of the fact that they can't move as fast as they want to. But ultimately, they win most of these battles over the long run <laughs> because we can only slow it so far. And we, you know, conservatives are on the side of like um, not 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 so fast. Okay, you know, we do we do we we want the society to change. You know we can't we can't be locked and uh, in uh, you know rigor mortis. But on the other hand, we can't move so quickly. You know, so I think it's the in some ways it it might be more frustrating uh, for the left uh, because they can't move as fast as they want. But on the other hand, it's the easier task because you know what you're going to do and there's no second thought. You know, it's just push
1: push 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 push. I think one of the things that draws me to conservatism is the amount of sort of truths held in tension. And maybe it's just a personality quirk. I don't know. But to me, it just feels like it fits reality so much better than most programmatic mm-hmm. or leftist ideological um, ideas. They, they seem a little too cookie cutter, a little too neat around the edges. And, and you know, Kyle, you mentioned Russell Kirk's contribution here and that emphasis on tradition and authority. His essay is wedded with Wendell, uh, or pardon me, Wilmore Kendall. mm mm-hmm. Kendall and Kirk very strongly disagreed with each other, in spite of the fact that in this book, they're kind of arm in arm arguing on the same side, if you will. Uh, Chiefly, I think Wilmore Kendall had a big issue with how much Russell Kirk elevated Edmund Burke, you know, instead of looking more towards like an American kind of definition to root conservatism in. And, And just all sorts of things throughout, you know, we're talking about American conservatism. We're trying to conserve a liberal revolution. I mean, that's just a head scratcher. How do you, how do you conserve a liberal revolution? (laughs) That's that's almost a contradiction in terms, but, but I think this synthesis between authority, tradition on the one hand and, and liberty to me fits with reality as I know it. I think that's right. And I, that is a good way of putting it. I think
0: about conserving a liberal revolution and, and you can see it in a lot of things. I think, you know, after the French revolution, they just started the calendar over. Like, this was year one. Everything's new. And and then you had that in, I mean, in uh, Soviet countries. They, I think they tried to do that. You know, they talk about, you know, it's the 66th year of the revolution because it was an ongoing revolution. You know, it was a constantly, re- you know, changing, progressing thing. And if you look at some early American documents, they sometimes talk that way. They say, you know, in the 13th year of the Republic. But nobody really leaned on it that much because, it's that I think it's, it's too cookie cutter. It's not, you know, it wasn't in the founding father's nature to say, we're just going to sweep away everything, even the calendar, you know? I mean, people say, yeah, but that's not how I've got a calendar on my, on the wall of my kitchen. It doesn't say that. So we're just going to keep doing it the same because that's the, that's the thing about tradition is it fits. It fits humankind because it's evolved around us. It's, you know, it's, it's the sum of our knowledge and it, and when it changes, it only changes because we change, not because we are being changed. Uh, and that, that is, is—that maybe that's distinctly American. And that is kind of what our podcast is meant to look at, is not just conservatism worldwide, although we've certainly read non-American authors frequently. But it's really about, you know, what is conservatism in this country? Because it is different. And I, I think we're more like Europe, and they're more like us than we used to be, just because of the way the frontier is closed and things have changed and you know we're more of a settled society than we once were but we're still so different and you know we don't have that aristocracy hanging over us we don't have the past the thousand years of uh blood and soil nationalism we've got our our tradition which is you know based in liberty based in turning things over but just not every year just just the
2: once yeah, I agree with you guys that, that that is a good way to say it. That uh, we're preserving the liberal revolution. I think what we're also conserving is a sense of some higher level authority. You know, some something something beyond us that has some objective truth, some uh, metaphysical sort of objective direction to guide a society. In the traditional wing, it's certainly the uh, God and and religion but we also have you know natural law is a con- is a deep conversation on the conservative side as well as the constitution itself you know here's something that we could set apart and point to and say okay this this is our guiding light that stands a little bit outside of us versus on the on the left the project that they've undertaken is to just tear each one of these things down and I personally believe that that's one of the reasons we we find ourselves in the the predicament that we do today, because there is no a higher authority that that we can point to anymore that that people agree on, you know. And we're not even just talking about Walter Cronkite on on <laughs> the evening news that everyone shares, but there's you know belief in God or you know I think folks on the left would just as soon like dump the Constitution if it got in the way. And living document is another way of saying like this thing is just, it's old, it's there. Yeah, it has some use to it, but as long as it's getting in our way, we can change it. We should uh, move beyond it. Um, and, uh, and and the same with natural law, which is sort of tossed. So I think that's another challenge of conservatism. And, and I think maybe part of conservative temperament, but certainly part of the orientation over the many books that we've read, I think, Al, is that is a as a desire to serve conserve some higher authority, some something uh, that we can all point to as as authoritative, that can kind of guide the society and and be you know wisdom for the ages, but it's becoming more and more difficult.
1: Russell Kirk in his list of ten conservative principles identifies that I don't think accidentally or unintentionally as the very first one. Mm-hmm. That the the first conservative principle being. Uh, the existence of a higher moral order. I, th- I think he uses words to that effect, if not exactly, that the moral order was made for man or humanity. The moral order is made for humanity and humanity was made for it. Now there's a lot of disagreement. You know, what does that mean? Are we talking explicitly Christian? Are we talking about God? Mm-hmm. But I think there is an underlying thread within conservatism itself that there has to be some sense of an objective outside of our just subjective personal opinion. You know, what what is the... Uh, um what is the phrase, live out your truth. Hmm. That's not a conservative idea. No. Right. Right. We don't each get to pick truth. That conservatism has to be rooted in this notion that there is an objective truth with a capital T.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Last week we read Herbert Marcuse's book, uh, which is one of our one of the um non conservative books we've been reading this the past couple of years. And that is uh <clears throat> that's the thing that stood out the most to me is that that, that whole movement is not just against tradition but it's against the idea of objective truth and it's it's so alien to people i think that it it's hard to see it ever catching on although i mean the things that descend from that movement are now sort of abroad in society you know with critical race theory and other descendants of that sort of postmodern thing where it's local knowledge and you know my truth your truth everybody's truth well, not everybody's truth. Somebody's truth. It's, it's it feels alien to the human experience. I mean, it feels more alien than Marxism did. You know, where at least Marxism was meant to be realist. I mean, I think they got a lot of things wrong, but it was based on Earth. It was based on humans. It was it didn't work for real humans, but it was meant to. Um, it was meant to be universal, which at least we could understand. But it's uh, that the way the, the left has gone so sort of out of bounds again i think sort that's that's why i think fusionism will eventually be recreated in when this reshuffling is all over and there might be a few different groups fused together but just you know the the left used to talk about the reality-based coalition but now they're the there is no in, there is no universal reality coalition and that that seems like it can't stand that it it, it it seems like most people are not going to uh get into something that's so far from tradition, so far, you know, right away. And I think that, Corey, when you mentioned the Constitution, too, it occurs to me just now that that sort of reflects that same conservative sentiment about change. Is You know, we don't worship it as holy writ. You know, we don't see it as, you know, the immutable word of the founders that can never be questioned. But to change it is hard. So it's yeah, got that it's yeah. got that presumption towards tradition as it becomes a tradition, but it's not absolute. And they, I guess, they tried to sort of do the same thing Burke was talking about. Uh, I, whether they did it, well, not be, I mean Burke was their contemporary, so I mean I don't, I don't know that they were basing it off of him. But they had the same kind of idea—the idea that we should keep things the same, but if there's a great need to change it, we can do so as long as there's broad enough agreement across many different levels and factions in society i think that that's why it fits us so well in a way is and and, you know when when people say like you were saying people say oh you know if you conservatives were around back then you'd be against all this you would have been tories you would have been for king george well we can be for the constitution while admitting and i think everybody i'm sure the three of us and everybody listening who has studied that thing probably has something they would change about it. And I don't think that's an unconservative thought. I just think doing it the right way, doing it with broad consensus and thought is what makes it conservative.
2: Yeah. In many ways, I mean, I think that's what's keeping America together because just imagine if there was no constitution. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think God has already been torn down. I think natural law has been torn down. Kirk has a a great quote in this book, says in his essay, men do not submit long to their own creations standards erected out of expediency will be demolished soon enough also out of expediency and (laughs) i think that's exactly right because this conversation about kind of our social media public public media conversation about we can't agree on the same facts i certainly agree that that's a that is a major problem but that's a symptom of the larger problem which is we can't we can't agree on any meaning at all we can't agree on Mm any objective truth we can't agree on any fundamental objective understanding that we share together we can't we can't agree on the most basic things and i think that that has serious implications for for stuff that doesn't matter like whether whatever twitter outrage of the day is is accurate or isn't you know but it's clear though that if if we don't have things we can agree on and i i think the constitution still remains uh so, something that we can that we can generally agree on i don't know about by the time my kids are our you know our age or mm-hmm. certainly our grandkids will will it have been undermined to to an even greater extent by then? i mean probably so and and what could be what could what could replace any of this with and what, whatever is replaced uh whatever we uh, replace it with is certainly going to be demolished soon enough as kirk says you know also out of expediency so I mean, that's a downer of a comment, but to be honest with you, that's, that's probably
1: my greatest concern, you know, moving forward. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Yuval Levin. I'm neither optimistic or pessimistic about the future. I'm hopeful about the future. I think we have good reasons to think that good things could happen, but that it's not guaranteed, right? <laughs> we don't really know what the future holds, yeah. but, and kind of thinking of Kyle, what you had mentioned, um. I There is something so alienating about, and I enjoyed that episode you guys did with Marcuse. I think that was an excellent, I, I like the fact you're you're getting into leftist books also, because I think that's, that's helpful to, to piece that all together to even understand conservatism. But there is something very alienated about it. And I completely agree that I think these sort of post-truth or pick-your-own-truth world we live in isn't going to stand. The problem is ideas, even really bad ideas, can sure stick around for a whole heck of a long time. Yeah. You know, before it eventually falls apart. So it, it's it's entirely possible, you know, Corey, to your point, that we are going to see a, a diminishing of of the authority of the Constitution, of the ordered liberty society we live in, and and when our kids get to be our age, or our grandkids get to be our age, and maybe eventually that'll that'll change, but it's there's no guarantee it's going to happen anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, it's um, yeah, it's troubling because you think it's lasted this long that. That should mean something. But again, we're on the side that values tradition and not not everybody does. And that's kind of the point when we read those lefty books is to sort of see it from their point of view, if we can, they don't care about tradition because they, and that's, you know, that seems, I don't, I don't mean to be dismissive, It they, but it's not, it's just not, it doesn't carry the same weight. It often carries a negative weight for them, you know, the idea, well, that's how they did it, but they did a lot of awful things, you know, and it's true there were a lot of awful things in the past. I mean, they're not wrong about that, but it's uh, still, I mean, I, even even Hayek admits that they're, they're, the idea of not, of a presumption against destroying things is useful. And he is, uh, as the essay says, not a conservative, but he says, you know, that that temperament can be, can have value even to one who is not necessarily inclined to keep everything. Um, But that, I think that is, I mean, we don't, we talk a lot about ideas, but I think as a pure political matter, as a, as a practical matter, I think that's how we win is because most people don't want to tear down everything in this country. It's pretty good. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all have problems and we all have things that we would change. And, even those of us who are very happy with our tradition often see that, you know, it has been un- applied unevenly in the past and that we should do better in the future. But that, that is still kind of a strain of traditionalism because what we're applying is those liberal values that are the American tradition. So I, I think that's, that can be, if you're talking about where is conservatism going, I think that can be a rallying point is, is, just not burning everything down, and it seems simple, but it's a good place to start
2: so Josh, what are you optimistic about? I'd love to hear i mean we we have uh, episodes where we're more or less optimistic. This one feels a little less optimistic. I'm not sure why but uh but I know that uh, you're forward thinking and what excites you and I mean I, let me pose it this way. I constantly hear the critique that uh, on the right, there's just no new ideas and there's nothing happening except uh, Trump worship and certainly there is trump worship happening I'm, I'm not going to deny that and what makes you optimistic or you know who's who do you view you could name a person or some ideas that are that are out there that uh, that are fresh or exciting for you I mean give us reason for for the listeners uh, reason for optimism
1: reasons for hope right I, I can easily give you a lot of reasons to to be pessimistic but but you know, two things spring to mind. One is this book itself. What is conservatism? As I kind of alluded to this earlier, these individuals, Kirk and Kilmore and, and Meyer, if you read about their lives, they fought each other a lot. And there was even this open question: Is fusionism even a thing? Is it just something that you know Meyer's pulling out of the air? But this ended up being, you know, this book was written in 1964. I believe this is the same year that Goldwater lost LBJ, when conservatism was, in a lot of ways, in a political sense, still a very nascent. Movement, but about a decade later, William F. Buckley made the the comment that fusionism, in a sense, won. That it it was the defining moment of of conservatism. It took a while. It wasn't obvious, and I think we're here in this moment again. I really think that some of the nationalist populist, some of the you know, I wouldn't even call it Trump worship because I I and I'm not trying to denigrate them necessarily, but I don't think it's necessarily even appropriate to include them in the conversation of what is conservatism but I think there's a lot of voices out there sort of straining against this fusionism. I don't think they're in the majority. And I think we may have some rocky road ahead of us, especially electorally speaking. I I definitely don't have a lot of reason for optimism in the near future. But when you read books like this and you think about how, you know, Goldwater losing to LBJ, that was one of the most lopsided electoral defeats in United States history. And two decades later, we began the Reagan revolution.
2: Hmm.
1: Now that, that history is sort of unknown, like what happens next. I don't know, but, but I have to believe that there is a lot of... I, I think we're really on the precipice of si- sort of another wave, if you will, of trying to figure out how, how do we build institutions? How do we stay within this ordered liberty? And there's going to be a lot of uh, collateral damage in the process, but I think we're just at the beginning of, of starting this battle all over again.
0: I I think you're right. I hope you're right. And I do think I think there's even in this current realignment, a lot of hope for success, because I think a lot of people who were lifelong Democrats are sort of reconsidering in in light of the increasing leftward tilt of that party. And that's why we're, we're bringing in a lot of, I mean, union members were not traditionally in our party. Oh, but a lot of what we're talking about now, we're talking about intermediary institutions, talking about the virtue of work, these are things that if we're the only ones talking about them, you know, it, it gives us a lot in common with people who didn't used to vote our way, but share a lot of our values in everyday life. And I think it, I was, um, I was listening to Ben Dominich's new podcast uh, where he was talking with David Shore the, uh, I don't know what you call him, pollster, uh, political analyst, um, just to, you know, about who shifted where in the last couple of elections and, we're i think we're breaking through in a lot of areas of people who are traditionally democrats but are sick of the just kind of over the top unreality un not just unconservative but untraditional un unmoored from american tradition sort of thing i think most americans want to are happy with this country even if they aren't, think there's occasional flaws and so I, I think there's reason for optimism there but also there's There's no predicting politics. We don't know who our next presidential nominee is. And that seems to be all that matters in the way our imperial system is coalescing around the white house. So, I mean, I think I like what you said earlier, it's not optimistic, not pessimistic, but there's reasons to, to hope. Um, And there's, there's, there's messages that should we, should the powers that be choose to emphasize them could be wholesome, beneficial, virtuous, and also uh win elections
2: we got to remember too that um after watergate the democrats had a wave and it lasted about a cycle and a half and then it was back right mm-hmm. so and uh no one including me thought that uh, trump would beat hillary in 2016 I mean, electoral politics are are funny and incredibly unpredictable and i mean we were talking about the tea party only a couple years ago and and now that seems like a a distant faint memory but i think i think uh josh your scenario is pretty plausible any closing thoughts for us thanks for joining us it's been awesome mm-hmm. you're you're a smart guy and and uh, i think the world benefits from from your show and from the conversation but what do you want to leave us with
1: you know i have never come up with a good answer to that question <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna have to work on my elevator pitch for closing thoughts but i i just want to say it has been a lot of fun talking to you guys and i would say the same to you i really enjoy your podcast i think you're doing god's work you know, going through these, these books that, quite frankly, probably the majority of your listeners do not have the time and will never take the time to read, but they can get those nuggets out of them that, uh, uh, that you offer forth, and I, I think we all benefit. And, and I'm, I'm trying to do the same thing at Saving Elephants. Check us out there. We try to have similar conversations, recognize that most people listening are probably not oddballs like uh, Corey Kyle and I that don't just eat, breathe, and sleep this stuff and have other things to do with our lives. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys, and, and keep up the good work.
2: Thank you. thanks a ton. Listeners. Get that on your uh, on your podcast app, Saving Elephants. Josh Lewis. He's a stud. All right, That's it. That's Frank Meyer. Catch us next time.